This is Mission.org. Hey, Marketing Trends fans. This is Ian, host of Marketing Trends and Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. First off, I wanted to thank all of you for subscribing and listening to the podcast. Our goal is to make a show that is helpful for marketing leaders around the world. And we have a fun opportunity to meet the Marketing Trends team in person. We will be podcasting live from Serious Decisions 2019 Summit on May 5th to 8th in Austin, Texas. Thanks to our friends at Salesforce Pardot. And you can nominate a podcast guest. That's right. We are looking for B2B marketing legends to tell their story. You can nominate a teammate or yourself to be a featured guest on the Marketing Trends Podcast if you click on the link in the show notes. Also, make sure to come by the Pardot booth number 402 to win swag and meet the team. And if you can't make it to Austin, don't worry. All of the episodes that we will record will be right here in our Marketing Trends podcast feed and in the marketingtrends.com newsletter. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions, email us at team at marketingtrends.com. Take care. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Jennifer Johnson, CMO at Tenable. Jennifer is also a startup advisor at Play Bigger and an expert at category design. In this interview, Jennifer talks all things category design, including how to master it and the biggest mistakes marketers make when it comes to category design. She also tells about her background, how she got into marketing, and her best piece of advice for a new CMO. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at mission.org. On the other line, Jennifer, what's going on? Hey, how are you? Nice to be here. Yeah, nice to be here as well. We are so excited to talk to you today about something that we have touched on a little bit in this podcast so far called category design. We, we did an episode with Christopher Lockhead, who you've of course. worked with, and we'll get, into, uh, we'll get into all that. And we wanted to bring you on. This is really exciting. You're a CMO who is, who is living it. And that is, it's really exciting because I think sometimes we get a little too far into the uh, pretend world and this is, we're bringing it back to reality to someone who's, uh, who's living that every single day. Well, I love it. Um, happy, happy to share any pearls of wisdom. And I'm, I have every confidence that your podcast with Christopher Lockhead was nothing short of legendary to use oh. one of his famous words. Oh, it was, it was, it was all time. And I think we only had to cut like Maybe one or two of the things that uh, that Chris said. Uh, we're a family friendly podcast, so it ended up. If you're only doing one or two cuts with Chris, then uh, it's, that's it's, pretty good, actually. Pretty good, pretty good. Yeah. Okay. So, how'd you get into marketing? Yeah, uh, great question. So, actually, when I grad, so I graduated uh, from college quite a few years ago, and my my first job out of college was healthcare financial consulting. So clearly, not at all in marketing. And, you know, when the dot-com, I lived in San Francisco during the dot-com boom, the first dot-com boom and bust of the late 90s, and everyone I knew was 
was running into every dot-com you could think of. So I, you know, jumped on that dot-com bandwagon and, and I took a, a marketing job. Uh, so my first marketing role at a company called fatbrain.com. Fatbrain.com was a technical computer online bookseller. So if there's any technical engineers out there in the Valley, you definitely remember fondly fatbrain.com. And so that was my first foray into, into marketing. And this was before digital marketing. It was before online marketing. It was really before marketing operations. So like I did my own digital marketing advertising campaigns was me physically sending text emails to hundreds of people <laughs> from so in my clients. It was awesome. So I was like a, a, a physical a physical Marketo, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the bust happened and I, like many others, went back to business school, got my MBA to ride out the, the downturn for a few years. And really that was when I, I made the, the real pivot into marketing and in a true technology, enterprise technology company. So when I came back out, actually while I was still in school, I did an internship at Veritas Software which is yeah. a data storage company. And this was before data, this was before Veritas was Symantec and is now back to Veritas. So it's interesting how like, you know, you stay in this industry long enough and everything comes full circle. But this was in the early 2000s. And so I was at, I did an internship at Veritas in product marketing. And then I joined them full time when I graduated. And the really, the rest was history. You know, I was very fortunate to work with great people along the way who kind of pulled me from, you know, one company to the next. My boss at Veritas went to Mercury Interactive where your former guest, Christopher Lockhead, was chief marketing officer. And so that's how I first got to know Christopher and Dave Peterson, who's part of the Playbigger crew in an operating capacity and then kind of just, you know, went from there. So my roots are really in product marketing, solutions marketing. I've sat in the same organization as R&D. So I'm unique in the sense as a CMO. So I've, this is my third, now Tenable is my third round as CMO. But uh, I, have a, I have probably a non-traditional CMO background in that my roots are not demand gen or brand or comms, even though I love all those things and you need to know all those things as a marketer. But my, my roots really come from product marketing and we'll get you know to talk to category design. But as you look at what actually makes a great category designer and the fundamentals of category design. The foundation of a category is understanding the problem you're solving and having a clear point of view. And it's really positioning. And the heart of every product marketer is to be a great, not just a great storyteller, but a great positioner because it's all about positioning. And so I really believe that product marketers are in a great shape, in great shape, and in a great position to be the CMOs of the next wave of the future. As category design becomes something that companies really need to embrace, and CEOs need to embrace. Every every call I I have with CEOs that are looking to either hire their first CMO or looking to bring you know a CMO in over their current team, it's the same story every single time. We need to reposition ourselves. We're kind of stuck between three categories. We need to chart our own category. Gartner's putting us in a, in a market or a magic quadrant that really is a niche. It's really downplaying or putting us in a smaller box than really the vision we have. And it's five different ways of saying the same thing. They need a CMO that understands category design. So anyway, I, I think, um, you know, in working with the Playbigger guys, I, I really like, 
I worked with them on a couple of engagements. And of course, I am now bringing category design in. I brought it into Tenable and I, and I talk about it a lot. And I think it comes back to the people who are the greatest category designers have a product marketing background. So congratulations to all of you product marketers out there. <laughs> You're in a great spot if you want to be a CMO. That does not mean if you are not a product marketer that you will not be a great CMO. It's just not your, it's probably not your normal muscle memory. Well, and that's what's great about Play Bigger is it, it gives you the playbook, right? Like that's part of what's so exciting about this. What was the initial kind of impetus or feeling that you had when you met that group of guys and you started talking to them about Play Bigger and someone who'd already been a CMO, like did it kind of all just click and you're like, this is kind of the feeling that I've had that someone's finally putting words to or, or what did that, I mean, I, I'll speak, I guess, really quickly to my experience. That was one of the things that when I read it, it kind of just was one of those like light bulb moments where like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. I can't believe that this is not something that's kind of like widely talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, was that similar for yeah, you? Yeah, so the story of Tenable is, is actually fascinating and completely serendipitous. So when I started talking to Tenable, the first person I talked to was Amit Uran, who's our CEO, who's amazing. And he had just joined Tenable. I think he had joined maybe two weeks before I talked to him. He came from RSA. So he's a, he is a great security pedigree, former founder, former CEO, really understands the industry deeply, worked at DHS. So he's a, he's a deep practitioner turned CEO. And he said to me, he said, look, he goes, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people kind of struck, scratched their head and looked at me funny when I said I was joining Tenable because Tenable had, historically has been known for vulnerability management, which in the world of cybersecurity is kind of like flossing your teeth is, is the way I would say it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. good hygiene. You have to do it. But people, it's one of those things where it's not like you are like, oh, yay, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go scan my network for vulnerabilities, right? But it, you have to do it, right? And if you don't, bad things will happen. But it's not one of those sexy things, right? And a lot of cybersecurity has been around like sexy, shiny, shiny, you know, new technology. So he's like, a lot of people asked me why I was coming. And I, he's like, I understand the value and the strategic importance of what we do in vulnerability management, which is the established incumbent at the time we thought maybe very mature, which I'll come back to that, very mature market. And he's like, we need to reinvent ourselves in a way. Not that we don't care about vulnerability management. It's our roots. It's our DNA. But if we're going to hang our hat as a company on vulnerability management, which depending on what analyst firm you talk to, Gartner says it's a, you know, one and a half to $2 billion market. IDC says it's somewhere between three and 5 billion, which is respectable, right? But it's like, we have a much bigger vision and a much bigger charter to, to go out and build into the market. And he's like, to do that, we need a category. We need a bigger box, so to speak, in which we play in. And so he conceptually completely got what the whole notion of category design was and why it was so important. And that is really critical because if your CEO, if your executive team, but in particular, if your CEO does not buy into the vision and the, the mission of category design, it will fail. Because you as a CMO are going to be out there standing on the mountain, you know, with the flag, waving the flag on your own, and the whole company is going to kind of move in a different direction and gravity will set in and you will be there by yourself over time. So that was like the first thing is that Amit, as our CEO, 
totally got it. Now, the next two people I met were the two, two of the three co-founders. We are blessed that two of our three co-founders are still in the company today operating, which is a, a blessing for a company that's almost 20 years old. And you, you know, you lose a lot of that vision sometimes when your founders leave. And so we're blessed enough that we have those two of the people here. And so when I met them, when I was talking to Tenable about joining, it was like, this kismet thing happened where I was talking to one of our, our founders, Jack Hufford, and I said I, I you know, was working with Playbigger and he almost fell out of his chair. He said, oh my gosh, he's like, you know Christopher Lockhead and Dave Peterson? <laughs> I said, yes. And he said, we actually, he's like, we had dinner with them a couple years before I joined Tenable. He's like, because we felt we needed to build a category and we read the book play bigger book. He's like, we wanted them to come in. And Christopher and Dave and, and Al very wisely said, look, you guys are great. And you definitely need to re kind of think about this bigger notion of a category. He said, but it's, you're not set up for success. He said, a, you don't have a CMO. They didn't have a CMO at the time. And he's like, oh, wow. It's, it's, it's more than just the CMO, but the CMO needs to be the quarterback, if you will, of the whole thing. So he's like, he's like you don't have the right executive team that is, is set up for success and it, it will fail. He's like, like, we can come in and give you the best point of view in the world. But if you don't know what to do with it, because getting to the starting line of launching your category, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into that. But that's just the starting line. And if you don't know how to kind of take it through the whole marathon, because it's a marathon, it's going to fail. So Tenable had this already this very positive uh, sentiment around play bigger and category design. And so the, the fact that I was going to potentially be coming in to not only be the, the CMO day to day, but also I'm bringing in the Playbigger methodology and playbook. It was like the stars all aligned. And I'll tell you, my first day, my first day at Tenable, it was a leadership offsite. And the whole, basically the whole leadership team cross-functionally, there were probably like 40, 50 people in the room. You know, I show up and I was the new kid in, on the block and me and my CEO had already bought copies of Playbigger for every single person there and handed them out and had them in the office and had them in his office in a library so people could read it. And it was required reading for the whole company. And like that kind of commitment on my first day, I didn't even have to ask him to do it. He already just did it proactively. That's how I knew from the get-go that it was going to be successful. And so having that like cross-executive team and CEO buy-in is one of the most important elements of success. You know, it's really interesting. So number one, I've heard from at least two other publicly traded company CEOs that did that exact thing. I'm like to a T, bought the books ahead of the all hands for the executive team. And like, everyone needs to read this required reading. One of them happened at the beginning of this year. And the other one, I think just happened in the past couple of weeks. So it's so cool to hear that because that is exactly the type of, you know, buy-in that I think is really exciting. And, and the other thing that I would add to that is that Matrofiro, when he was talking about this, and he kind of has a different take on category design. I wouldn't say he's like fully bought in on the play bigger, but he it's similar types of, of segmentation. It's similar methodology. And when he goes into his interviews to be a, a CMO, he requires his CEO be like 25% of your time is going to be devoted to essentially 
evangelizing the category via public relations. And that's kind of his playbook, a little bit different, but it's an interesting thing of like just going into the job. It's like, this is table stakes for me joining the team. It's like, we got to play. We got to, I almost said we got to play bigger. Um, (laughs) We got to, uh, we have to focus and execute the strategy. Otherwise, like it's just not going to work. And that's like so empowering. Cool. Anyways. No, I think it's great. No, I think it's great. I mean, it, it brings a tear to my eye to hear that there's other CEOs that are that are out doing that too. And I've, I've heard similar stories, but at the end of the day, the buck starts and stops with the CEO in every element of your business. And category design can be, you know, something that just becomes a, a marketing message. If no one is committed to it long-term or done right, it becomes your company strategy. I'll tell you. Because it's really about, in the, in the book, they really talk about how you bring company and category or go to market and product strategy all together in the magic triangles, what they call it, right? And it's so true because if one of those things goes out of whack, A, the category should be a unifying component to those, right? It brings it all together. But when one of those pieces of the triangle goes out of whack, let's just say your product team has a different vision for, for what they want to go build and it's not, it's not aligned to your category, you know, your category could fall flat, right? So you need to have all of those things, all of those things need to be in, in sync all the time. And that is really those three sides of the triangle represent the entire executive team and all the functions there. So, and sometimes the CEO has to be the one to make sure that it stays on track or look, reality happens for the best of intentions. Sometimes things do get out of whack or out of sync and the CEO needs to be the one to kind of make sure that it comes back together because they know only they sometimes are the person that can do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've heard people talk about this like idea of the, of the plank holder or, you know, pin the rose or whichever, whichever analogy, you know, people use. But I think that I forget the exact one that is used kind of in the book or that Christopher used in the past, but basically this idea that the CMO is positioned so brilliantly with category design that the CEO is, you know, at the front of the boat and, the CMO has the opportunity to, to hold the rudder. And I think that that's the cool part, or maybe it's switched, I don't know. But, but I think that that's the really cool part is that the CMO now gets to be the steward of this thing that is at the forefront of the company's strategy. And when you're at the forefront of the company's strategy, you have the opportunity to really make those changes and really back in the actual marketing tactics that you're going to be using, the strategies and tactics that you're going to be using. And I think that that's, it like level sets the playing field. Do you find that, that that's kind of the case that once you have this buy-in for category design, that the actual strategies and tactics from a marketing perspective now become easier because you have buy-in from sales, you have buy-in from products, you have buy-in from you, you know your CTO or CIO. Have you found that? Oh, absolutely. And I would even take it one step further to say that category design doesn't just level the playing field. Category design elevates the position and the role of the CMO, right? And so, you know, and and there's nothing wrong with this. A lot of times there's CMOs that, and look, demand gen and pipeline development is critical. It doesn't matter how great of a category designer you are. If you're a CMO, you have to understand the lead flow and the funnel and be a revenue marketing to some extent. So like, I'm not downplaying that at all. And if that's your background and your strong suit, I, from my perspective, I think sometimes the challenge with that is you get brought into the operational conversations about lead generation, lead flow, pipeline development, MQL to SQL conversions. All of that is important. But if that is your quote unquote 
personal brand as the CMO in the company, it changes the dialogue or your dialogue with the rest of the executive team is, I don't want to say it's tactical because those things are very, very important, but think of it this way. You could either be the person people come to when they want to understand the lead flow, or you can be the person that people come to when they want to make sure that the product strategy is in line with the vision for the industry. And you're the one that's commentating on the market, not the marketing, right? Like there's a difference between being the one who understands and is shaping the market and the person who understands the operational side of marketing. It completely changes the dialogue. And you know, me as, as a CMO in Tenable, the great thing is, is I, well, A, I have a fantastic, my VPs on my leadership team are like second to none, right? And so they give me the lift because they are so amazing. They give me the lift to be able to focus on the category. And that's critical too, is as a category designer, CMO, you need to have a really strong operational leadership team underneath you that gives you that lift to do that. But I'm in the product strategy meetings. I'm in the go-to-market strategy meetings. I'm in the GNA strategy meetings. Like it's, it's, it's an amazing place to be because you become this, this central role. It, you know, obviously the CEO is ultimately the, the steward of, of the strategy and the leader of the company. But as a CMO, you're, you're kind of in this like great spot where you have your hand in a lot of strategic discussions instead of being, I don't want to say pigeonholed, but, but relegated to one specific conversation, which is more operational in nature. I believe it's pigeon held. Pigeon held. Uh, oh, sorry. No, pigeon held. Sorry. <laughs> no, I was, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I think that one of the concerns that we've seen from from CMOs that have went into the role, whether it's for the first time or for the fourth time, that they're a little worried to use their playbook because, or they or they need to test to see if their playbook is going to be a fit for this exact thing, or they're figuring out how to tweak that thing. The play bigger playbook, I think, is something that you know, the book argues is, is table stakes for any marketer, for any CMO to have. And it's not the type of, you know, demand gen playbook or tactical playbook that what you would say probably is your VPs are executing, that they probably have their playbooks of how they're doing that. And you kind of, you know, look at things from, from a higher level than that. Have you ever felt like when you're adopting this methodology of category design that you felt like, you know, that, that kind of dark night where you're like, does this even work? Or like, are we sure this works or anything like that? Or, or, or has it been, I mean, obviously not all blue skies, but has it been uh, something that you haven't really had to have any of those concerns? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that I am a firm believer that category design and specifically any methodology, but specifically the playbook methodology, it's part science, but it's also part art. And what do I mean by that? So if you, if you think about the process from start of the process of like, who are we, what problem are we solving, like that initial discussion to having your point of view, getting your category defined, knowing what the name is and going out and launching it, right? That process, which is a big, that's a big lift, right? Because you have to get, you have to get everyone aligned. When I say it's part science, is I think the Playbigger book gives you a great framework for the building block components. Like you have to have a point of view. And in that point of view, you have to understand what problem you're solving and be super crisp on it. You have to have a, a, what they call a, a blueprint. And the blueprint is your vision for the category. And that's usually like ties into your product strategy. It also ties into your ecosystem. Because if you know what problem it is you're solving, you know what the story is around it, you know how, what role it is you play and you want to be like that control point. You're never going to solve the whole thing, 
but you want to be the control point to it, then, then it becomes clear, well, here are the partnerships we need to make. This is potentially where we need to go think about partner build by, right? And so it gives everybody a North Star, but they give you the, the framework, which I think is a great way to, to guide the discussion and get to decision points. But the art is how you actually go about that. And really category design is, in my opinion, executive and company change management. Because really what you're doing is you're getting the entire executive team, depending on who's you know, in the room when you make the decisions, right? Usually it's the executive team and maybe a couple other key people in the company. But when you decide on those big things like the problem we're solving, aligning on the story, coming up with the category name, those are things where you have to get the whole room on the same page. That's not easy. Right. So, you know, when I started the process, I did a four hour workshop with the executive team and I got everyone in a room. I had a big easel and I said, what is the problem we're solving? And I literally, I did not insert my opinion. I did not lead the witness. I just let every single person individually talk and add their contacts. And I wrote it all down and I synthesized it and I kept synthesizing it. And then when I came back with the thesis based on what I heard, people gave me more feedback. Then, then you kind of understand like there's certain people who are like, everyone's important, but there are a couple people in that process that become like the linchpins to getting to the answer. Your CEO is probably one of them. Maybe your CTO, which might be your, your founder is one of them. Usually they have, they have the answer. So I'll say like a little bit of like inside baseball. If your CTO or your, your founder, your technical founder is still in the company, they probably have the answer because they were the ones that actually saw the problem to begin with to start the company. And so if, if they saw it then, they can see it now. They're visionaries. So like you understand who those like key people are that every voice carries weight. Every voice matters. Everyone has an opinion when they're in the room. There's a couple of people that help really, I think, kind of shape it, right? And so I think when you understand that and you can kind of navigate, and if Amit, my CEO, was on the phone right now or in the podcast, he would tell you, JJ ran a, a masterful process. And I'm not gloating. This is literally the words he always uses when he talks about it. Because what he says is everybody saw a bit of their own point of view in that end product. I was able to synthesize everybody's feedback in a way where everybody saw their own work. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And when you can do that, right, when you can do that, everybody's bought in because they see their own work in there. And so that's like the, the art around it. And then I'd say, and, and like, there's no one that can, there's no book that can teach you that. That's all just about how you navigate a process and work with an executive team and change management. And then there's, the, I get a lot of questions about from CMOs about, okay, we're launching the category. What's the right way? They, they talk about the concept of a lightning strike, right? And, and a lightning strike happens, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's once a year, maybe it's twice a year. Maybe you do it in rolling thunder, but it's your way of, of continuing to go back out to the market to keep shaping the market to your category. And there could be different objectives based on the lightning strike, right? That you're trying to achieve or different audiences you're trying to move. And people always ask me, well, what's the right way to do this? And what I have to tell people, and it's the truth, there is no one right way to do it. For us at Tenable, we got the point of view nailed. There was a, a really big security conference called Black Hat. For those in cybersecurity, you know it, of course. It's one of the two big cybersecurity shows. And we had the point of view ready. And so, but we didn't have the big product announcement yet. We weren't yet ready to go there to tie to it. So we made this decision. Well, we, we sat there and said, well, do we hold the point of view and the story until we have the product story to go with it. 
which wasn't going to be until this was like July and it wasn't going to be until the following March or April. And what we decided, which was the right thing to do is no, let's get the message out there and let that be a more of a branding vision moment and start conditioning the market to our new story. And then the product, the, the next lightning strike in the spring would be around layering in the product, right? And so there's no, you know, in a perfect world, everything comes together and you have this great lightning strike that ties your air cover to your product and you have these big announcements on the product and you can hijack an event and everything comes together in a neat little bow. doesn't always work that way. So it's like you have to find the, the right thing that works for your company. And as with everything in marketing, there's no one right answer. I think that frameworks and playbooks are great to give you a guide, but you as the CMO kind of have to like look at what's going on and adjust and make the right decision for your business. So there's no, I don't think there's really one size fits all that that works. I think it's dependent on, on, on what's right for you as an organization. Yeah. And I think it's such a critical insight, the way that you brought the leadership team in. And it actually reminds me of in negotiating the one sheet, right? Where you always work off of a one sheet because then everybody's thoughts are all together. When you are working off of multiple sheets, it's like, you know, it could be anybody's going to get tied to their idea, but when it's all in one thing and nobody's taking, you know, nobody's claiming the different ideas that it's all in one place. And I think it's really interesting as well that, that this happens for more mature companies. I think a lot of people are concerned with this idea of, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a startup or a big company, but you know, for startups, it's like getting this first piece of category that that you want to own out into the world. But I think it's interesting that you're talking about for a bigger company that needs to, you know, realize they want, maybe it's a larger percentage of market share. Maybe it's a new market that, that you see that's bigger than the existing one or or something like that, that it's time to reset the table and that the marketer is at the center of this because of the way that you're going to take it to market. And what you were just talking about there, about taking it to market, did you ever feel like once you were saying, okay, everything's not going to be perfect. We're not going to wait for product rollout. We're not going to, we're just going to start evangelizing this. Did you ever feel that the hair on the back of your neck? Like, what if someone co-ops our messaging? What if someone tries to steal our branding? What if, you know, what if this is something that somebody else uses to run with? Or is it more of the idea that, you can't steal this messaging because our product is going to perfectly fit the market that we're creating yeah, no, that is or a, the category that we're creating. That is a great question. So here's, and, and, and I've been asked this quite a bit. It's kind of, it goes against conventional wisdom because if you want to own a brand or a term or a category, you know, the conventional wisdom would say you don't want others to use it because you want to own it. Actually, the inverse is true here because A, you can be the pioneer of a category. And I go back to this notion of the control point. You want to be in the driver's seat. So that category can't happen without you. But no one company will ever be able to fulfill the category vision entirely on their own. And if you can, your category is not big enough. Your vision is not big enough. And so you by default have to have others in the industry and an ecosystem of partners and people joining into that category. And every time they join in, they help validate it. And when you think about competitors using your terms, I am a big believer in imitation as the sincerest form of flattery. Go let them talk about it all day long because every time a competitor uses your term, they are validating your term. And it all comes back to execution. Anyone can go out and plagiarize. And I think, by the way, there's a 
there's too much of that as, as marketers in the industry. So this is my PSA of let's stop just like lifting each other's content off of websites and plagiarizing. (laughs) But, but but what I will say is it all comes back to execution. You can plagiarize and copy words on a page, but if you're just copying words on a page and you don't have the strategy behind it, or you don't know how to execute on it, you're never going to win. Because obviously building, this, building the strategy of the category and defining the category is very important and hard work. But at the end of the day, after you launch it, it's all execution. And so if you don't have the execution playbook to back it up, you're not going to win. So I think people should not be worried about others copying the messaging, using the same category, trying to come in and get into their space or or copy their strategy, because all it does is validate you. And if your organization is, you know, not only confident that you have the right team and and product and and go-to-market strategy, but you can actually execute on it, you will win. Do you think people should think about like trademarks and you know, registering certain things. I mean, I think that this is, it's one of those kind of old school methodologies that you don't necessarily see smaller companies ever doing these days of, you know, like trademarking their their new slogan. But you see it a lot with older companies, uh, specifically with, you know, when they're running TV ads and all this sort of stuff. What do you think on yeah, that? Yeah, so I think the first thing I'd say is a tagline is not a category. So I think it's fine if you have a catchy tagline that helps, you know, explain your category vision and point of view if you want to trademark that. But actually, it's funny because one of our board members asked me the same question in a board meeting is, do we want to trademark the category name? And my feedback was, Anything that would restrict or prohibit others from using it is actually bad. You don't want to because you want people to validate it. And if you put barriers up to doing that, it's only going to harm you in the end. I love that. And I think the point is to be the category king, right? It's not to be the uh, category island, uh, you know, king, where it's just you out there by yourself screaming into the wilderness. The point is to have the market share of that category. Therefore, you need other entrants in the market. And I think that that's kind of one of the one of the common pitfalls that people want to be so protective over, you know, your phrase or, or, or whatever it is, that you're exactly right, that that's, that's a huge pitfall. Are there any other things that you've seen that are some common mistakes with category design? You know, I think the biggest thing is thinking that the single biggest mistake that companies make is is thinking, oh, okay, we've launched it. Now we can just like let it go on autopilot because that's where things fall. Because Play Bigger talks about it a lot in the book and, and just in general about this, this concept of, of gravity and gravity setting in because it's inevitable it will happen. It will happen in any company, no matter how committed you are to the category, something will happen. So for example, you know, someone will say, yeah, but our customers want us to do this. So we're going to go, we're going to build this instead. And that it's really not aligned to the category, but this is what our customers want today. Or Gartner doesn't see the market this way. They're talking about this. And so we think we should just like start using the Gartner terminology because it's already, it's Gartner, right? There's these things that start to happen or the sales team says, yeah, but that's too far of a vision we just really need to sell what we've got today. And then they start kind of reverting back to their current messaging and their current portfolio instead of leading with the vision and then showing how what they have today is going to build into the bigger vision. And those are all common, very common pitfalls. And so the role of the CMO is to make sure that you've got, A, you've got to be able to watch for those because they're going to happen and cut them off at the pass, right? And be able to educate and 
articulate and help guide the different teams in your company through and educate them through why these things are normal or why you don't want to go revert back to Gartner or how you build Gartner's methodology today into your bigger category vision. And so there's a way to incorporate it in instead of saying it's an either or. Like those are the things that, and the CMO is going to have to be the one minding the store because ultimately as the quarterback for the category, they're going to be the ones that have to watch for those things. And you know, I think that's probably the biggest mistake people make because if you don't do that, what's going to happen is then people start kind of just doing their own thing in the company. And then you have a, you, then you have an inconsistency of your, of your branding problem. You have an inconsistency of the story you're telling into the market. People are confused on who you are. So, you know, I think you have to be watching for that. The other thing is that you need to be able to be flexible to adjust. I'm not saying that, you know, you have a category and then all of a sudden you just change your category name a year in. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But I think there's a notion of being able to watch what happens and how the market responds to your category and then be able to, you know, make tweaks along the way. And I will give you a very concrete thing that's happening for Tenable is, you know, when we join and I kind of, you know, I told the story earlier on about how we needed to quote unquote supersize ourselves out of VM vulnerability management, which is our core market. And at the time, all the telltale signs were that maybe the category, the vulnerability management category was becoming more mature. It, it looks like this. Some of the other players in the market were end of lifing their vulnerability management products. There are three players that pretty much had emerged at that point, us and, and two of our, our competitors, as the, if you will, category kings of that market. What we believed was there wasn't a lot of new market share and growth to take, and we needed something that was a superset of, of vulnerability management. The interesting thing that has happened is this bigger vision around cyber exposure, which is our category, and the fact that all three of the major players in vulnerability management are now public companies, and we are, not all of us, but most of us are growing, two of the three of us are growing at a, at a faster pace than what analysts are estimating in the market. Actually, all three of us might be, but two at a, at a faster rate, one, us and, and another one. But we're all basically eclipsing where the analysts are saying that the market is growing, and you know that because we're all public, and it's all publicly available data. So- What's actually happened, and, and because companies are realizing that you have to get the basics of cyber hygiene right, and it may not always be the sexy stuff, but it's the stuff, it's the flossing your teeth that you have to do. All of those things are creating what I call this renaissance in our core vulnerability management market. And what we're seeing is that actually the growth that we're seeing from our core market is much more than we thought, number one. Number two, what we're seeing is there's still a lot of what we call greenfield opportunity. This isn't as, as tapped out of a, of a mature market and penetrated market as we thought. There's still a lot of companies who still aren't even doing vulnerability management yet, right? They aren't even doing the basics or they outsourced it and they're bringing it back in-house and building the program in-house. So what we're seeing is that actually our core market still has a lot of tailwind behind it. And we have this much bigger vision which now is driven by digital transformation and the rise of new kind of device and system types and the fact that industrial control systems are now attack vectors and cloud and all that. So we kind of almost had to evolve a little bit. So instead of like going straight to the end game of cyber exposure, which is still the vision, we actually talk about, we spend more time talking about why vulnerability management is strategically important and why that be, be forms the foundation of 
being able to get to cyber exposure. So if you think about it almost, it's like a maturity model, right? And your first step is VM, vulnerability management, right? And it kind of, you go on this maturity path to cyber exposure, but that wasn't where we started. When we started it, when we, when we first launched our point of view, which was like August of 2017, it was all about cyber exposure. We actually didn't even like use the words. I don't think we use the words vulnerability management very, very often. Now we're embracing it more because we realize, and that was a little bit of an adjustment, right? As we realized that there's still a lot of growth in that market. And so I think like the, the story, that, the message there would just be, don't be afraid to make tweaks and you might need to come back to it and you might need to come back to your, your category blueprint and your architecture a year in or a year and a half in, two years in. I think it's actually a good exercise to go back in and audit. Look, is the vision still resonating? Do we need to change anything? Is our product strategy still aligned? Where the market's moving? And I think it's, you know, not only is it okay I think the companies that don't do that and just say, look, we built it and now we're just going to let, let it run by itself, they're going to falter somewhere. And I think that it's so critical to know that you are going to pay a premium for educating the market about the category. What I love about you know, Tenable's website and just Tenable.com, we'll link it up in the show notes. The first tab is cyber exposure and you can explore cyber exposure and you can get an overview of it and you can... You can see what this thing is. But the truth is that the people who have been have known the phrase vulnerability management or even better are new to that phrase because they're one of those folks that just kind of have have kind of missed the boat, the the long tail of that, they're still searching for vulnerability management. They're not ready to learn yet about cyber exposure because it's kind of that crawl walk run that you that you've talked about. And I think that that's one of the cool things, you know, you've written about this idea of like not over rotating, you don't want to just abandon the things that people are searching for, essentially, you don't want to abandon the things that people are familiar with, because that's the stepping stone that gets them to the aha moment of oh, there's this bigger thing that I should be worried. about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my PSA to everyone out there, that's either launching a category or has already launched their category is don't think it's going to go on autopilot. And you made a great point. Understand where your customers and the market is in their understanding of the category, their ability to adopt the category, your ability to fulfill the category. And I'm, I'm going to guess that more than likely, you're going to have to have stepping stones because either you don't have everything out of the gate, it's got to align your roadmap, your customers are still kind of grappling with phase one, right? In your crawl, walk, run scenario. It's amazing with this barrage of messages that our customers and the market get. It doesn't matter what market you're in. And I think in cybersecurity, it's, it's even more severe is part of the issue is that the people who are buying the technology, they can't even decipher what's what because they're just getting hit with messages from everywhere and everything's Absolutely. Right. And so I think it's about like helping them break it down. One of the guys I used to work with at a a previous company, he was in sales. He always said that his job, his job was to help not to sell software, but his job was to help his customers be able to buy software more efficiently and effectively. And what did he mean by that? It was about helping them understand in these large enterprises, sometimes they don't even know how to navigate their own company. He would go in and help them understand who are the right people that need to buy in. Like who are the decision makers? How do you get through a PO process and a procurement process? Like, and when you think of it like that, it's like your job is not to force a message. So as marketers, our job is not to force a message down someone's throat and just hope they get it. Our job is to help 
educate them and our customers and bring them along on the journey with us and help them get from point A to point B to point C, even if your category is point Z, right? And that's our job. Yeah. One of the things we talked about on a previous episode is this idea that if you're creating a category that's going to create a new job within a company, you're on the right track, number one. And number two, it's going to be tough sledding and you got to know that. You know, if down the road there's a cyber exposure officer uh, or chief cyber exposure officer at the company, that's probably going to happen. You know, that person's probably going to work for the CISO or, or, or whoever it is. Like, that's the sort of stuff I think that's so exciting. It's absolutely exciting and it's a journey and it's not, you know, the Play Bigger guys always say category design is not for the faint of heart and that is absolutely true. But the companies that do it, they've got guts, they've got swagger and I'm happy and I'm, I'm proud to be in one of them and happy and proud to be part of the team that has helped make that transformation for, for the company. So, hey, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now. My hope is that as a marketer talking about category design of category design, my hope is that there will be a category design officer in a company. Like, wouldn't that be a novel concept? Is if the CMO exactly right. actually becomes the chief category designer. I mean, wouldn't that be great? So we'll see. You got to get out of here. Final question, really quick one. What's your best advice for a first-time CMO? Make sure that you have a very good relationship and transparent relationship and one that's built of trust with your CEO. Because look, at the end of the day, the CMO is, is in the most precarious and vulnerable seat on the executive team in my opinion. And I say that because, look, the CFO is all about numbers. It's very binary. The CTO or the head of engineering or head of product, like they can just go into the technical details and they're building a roadmap. The head of sales, it's, are you hitting your numbers or are you not? It's very binary. But this, the head of marketing has a very subjective job, right? Where everybody, look, the great thing about marketing is that you get great ideas from all over, everywhere in your company, because everybody has good ideas. The flip side of that is everybody thinks they're a marketer and everybody thinks they can poke holes in your business and poke in your business and have an opinion about things. And I'm not saying it's coming from a bad place, but it's just a fact of life when you're the, C the CMO. And at some point, someone might not agree with what you're doing, or someone may think you need to be doing a better job of this. And you need to make sure that that the CEO not only has your back, but the CEO A understands the value of your role and you and what you bring to the table. And you make sure that you have that symbiotic relationship because at the end of the day, the only relationship that matters to you is your relationship with the CEO. Who, they're likely your boss, right? Assuming that, that the CEO is your boss. And so at the end of the day, that's the only relationship that matters. And so make sure that one's tight. And I would even say it's even before you get into the company and the position, I would use that as part of your decision criteria for joining a company, especially in your first CMO role, is you are interviewing the CEO for their understanding and appreciation of marketing just as much as they are interviewing you. You, you learn it. a lot by just asking them the question, define marketing. Ask a CEO, define marketing for me. What do you think it is? What value do you think it provides? And what is a good CMO in your opinion? You will get a lot of insight based on how they answer that question. Jennifer, this has been amazing stuff. We got to have you back. That was not enough time. You're incredible. And, uh, and this stuff is, is at the forefront of, for marketers everywhere. And we just appreciate your time and, and coming on the show. And uh, we'll be following along uh, Tenable's journey. 
Oh, I love it. And this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. And I would love to be back. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.